everybody has different experiences when they are growing up, but I think there's, there's one thing that is probably universally true about almost every one of our childhoods, <clears throat> and, and it's this. When you, as a kid, were in trouble, like, there, you know, you got yelled at for all kinds of different things, but there was, there was things your parents did that, that kind of caused you to know, oh, man, like, I'm, I'm in deep trouble now. Maybe for you it was that, you know, that your, kid, your parents would say your full name. Like I always knew when it was Vincent Benjamin Latz that you better run because stuff's about to hit the fan. And whatever I did is worthy of like prison sentence level stuff, right? Um, but there's something that I think probably every kid has heard growing up. And it's, it's so much worse than Vincent Benjamin Latz or whatever your full name is. And it's, it's this, tell me, if, if you've heard this phrase, actually raise your hand if you grew up with this as a kid. I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. There's nothing worse than I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Right? Because mad, I don't know, every time my, my parents got mad at me, but by the next day, like, there might be some lingering whatever, you know, like, have you learned your lesson? But anger subsided. Like, there was a finiteness to it. And you could get a read on when the anger was over. Disappointment, though, that stuff lingered for, like, weeks. Right? If my mom said to me, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed, it's not the next morning I'd wonder, is she still disappointed? I don't know. She's smiling. What does that mean? Is, is smiling good? Is smiling no more? You wouldn't know. Right? Disappointment, there's a sting that comes with it. And that, that phrase is just like a gut. Right? My kids are too young to even know. If I, just, if I looked at Graham now and said, I'm not mad, but I'm disappointed, he would just kind of look at me like, what? Right? But, but someday he will hit that age, and I'll be able to just, mm, just twist the knife. Right? It is a harsh thing to hear. And here's the thing. The Lord doesn't say in the passage we're reading today, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. Right? As a matter of fact, the Lord gets mad in the passage for today. But when we're reading the church of Laodicea and we're reading the things that God says to it, I want you to keep in mind for later the feeling you got when your parents would say that to you. That like deep, unsettling, just ooh, Right? Man, it is so much worse to have your parents be disappointed than to just be angry, right? There's something beyond anger, and every one of us growing up knew it. There was a, a level to which you just, you wondered, like, do they even want you around? Of course your parents loved you and they wanted you around, but did you just feel that pain? Hold on to that feeling as we get into the passage that we're talking about today, and we'll, we'll reconnect to that idea when we get there, okay? Just don't feel like that the whole sermon, but just remember what that felt like as a child. To recap where we've been, this is our last week in the letters to the churches of Revelation. Seven letters to seven churches. That's why our series is called Seven Words to the Church Today. Right? And today is the last one, the city of Laodicea. And we have talked about a whole host of churches with a whole host of issues. So let's just revisit real quick. We started with Ephesus. Ephesus was what? The church that had... Great doctrine, great teaching. They were a solid church. They were the church that, you know, would be proud of the preaching and teaching that they had. Their elders would be the ones who wouldn't allow any false teaching in. They were a gateway for all things bad, and they kept all things good. But what? Ephesus lost their first love. They weren't a loving church. They weren't a church that had passion or zeal. They were just kind of existent. They were staunch, and while they had the doctrine right, I don't think they really knew how to live that doctrine out in everyday life. Right? It's one thing to know your Bible. It's a whole other thing to live it. 
and to take what Scripture teaches and apply it and live out of it in the everydayness of our lives. Ephesus didn't do that. Smyrna was commended by God. They didn't have anything against them. They were just treated very harshly. They were struggling with various things, and the Lord tells them, just hold fast. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Right? It's the first of two churches that God has nothing against. He just commends. Pergamum was the tolerating church. Right? They were the ones that allowed kind of false teaching to be there. They didn't really do much about it. It was out in the wild. People of their church were starting to follow these, these idolatrous things. Right? We talked about the Nicolaitans and their teaching. They were just tolerant of things. They just kind of let it, let it go. Well, it's out there. It's not a big deal. Some of our folks are listening. Right? It's okay. Like We have a couple of folks in our church who read Joel Osteen books. No big deal. Right? Let it go. Right? By the way, if you're reading Joel Osteen books, please talk to me. We'll make a pastoral appointment. We'll talk about that in private. But we should burn those. Anyway, that's aside, and that one's for free. Uh, Thyatira was the church that was the compromising church. They had gone beyond just tolerating stuff. They had had it in their midst, right? They tolerated the woman Jezebel. They let her in. They let her teach things, and she was leading people astray. And what happened in Thyatira is the beliefs of false teachings were starting to affect the practice of people. They knew they had a mess in their church. They knew it was affecting them, but they let it happen anyway, and they let it continue on. So they compromised who they actually were. Sardis was the church that was dead. Right? There was a, a remnant. There was a few faithful people in Sardis. But for all intents and purposes, the church had breathed its last. And the Lord essentially says, you are dead. There's a few among you, and I hope you're faithful. Keep, keep doing what you're doing, and, and you'll, you'll see me on the last day. But as a church, you're kind of gone. You've let this fester. You've tolerated. You've compromised. And when, the, when sin and practice actually entered, you still haven't done anything about it. And the church is just kind of dying from the inside out. Right? And then finally, Philadelphia was the small but mighty church. The one that was doing things as they were called to. They were living into the realities of God. They were holding fast and faithful. They thought of themselves as nothing, but they held on to what they had. And the Lord told them, you might be small, but I will open every door for you and no one will be able to shut it. Right? Those are the churches we've hit so far. Today, we're going to look at the harshest letter of them all. Did you think it couldn't get worse than you are dead? Well, you're wrong. It can get worse. I'm not mad. I'm disappointed. Right. Let's stand together as we read from the Word of God. This is Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. 
If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. It's the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Have a seat. This isn't the love letter that you want to get. Right? There's a whole lot of language in here that we don't want to hear as the people of God. Uh, Laodicea was a, a unique city in a lot of ways. It was located uh, right next to two sister cities. One is called Hierapolis. You might have never heard of Hierapolis, but the other is Colossae, which you might have heard of. It's where the book of Colossians was sent. And so just a few miles from Colossae, we had this city of Laodicea. It was built in the third century by, we've heard of this guy before, Antiochus II. He named it after his wife, Laodis. And so they literally, I don't know, gentlemen, ladies, what's your man done for you lately? Antiochus named the city after his wife because he loved her that much. Right? So if you did the star registry thing a couple years ago, you've got some work to do. Right? Name a city after your wife, and then we'll talk. But Antiochus names the city after her. That's how it comes to be. It was an extremely wealthy, well-to-do, prosperous city due to a whole host of different factors. For one, it was in a really fertile area, and so it was a lucrative place for growing crops. It was also really good grazing ground for livestock, and so there was a lot of life in that way, a lot of commerce happening. It became famous for, for they would breed this special kind of sheep, I don't know how they did this, but they crossbred. They got the sheep that would produce shiny black wool. And so they could make garments that were shiny and black. And they were really sought after all across Asia Minor. They really wanted to have these everywhere. They would make turnics out of it and all kinds of different things. But it was, it was, it was what Laodicea as a commerce place was famous for. The other thing they were famous for was the banking industry. If you want to know if a city's rich, if banking is your big thing, chances are you got a lot of money, right? They were well-to-do. Because of all the industry and all the stuff, banking became a centered thing there, and it was really a prosperous place to be. We referenced a, a few letters ago that in 60 AD, there was an earthquake that wiped out a whole bunch of cities in Asia Minor, and, and a lot of the cities of the letters we've talked about were wiped out. And each and every one of them, Rome helped rebuild, right? So the Roman Empire came in and financed and helped them rebuild their cities. Laodicea was the only city in the region that when offered Roman money to rebuild said, no thanks, we don't need it. We have everything we need. We don't need a loan, we don't need help, we've got, we've got the money, we're already, as a matter of fact, we're halfway done building. I don't know where you've been, but we, we've got it under control, right? And so Laodicea was the only city that didn't require Roman aid in order to rebuild after the AD 60 earthquake. They were a big deal. They had many leather-bound books and their apartment smelled of rich mahogany. If you don't get that reference, go watch some movies. Right? But Laodicea was a massive deal. They were wealthy, they were well-to-do, and, and more importantly, they were self-sufficient. If you ever heard the phrase, pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, Laodicea didn't just pick themselves up by the bootstraps. They built the boot and the straps and the foot that the boot was on and then picked it up by themselves. This was the mentality of that city. They were self-sufficient, they had everything they needed, and they didn't need any help. Right? And so that goes into the mindset of the church as well. 
And we'll see how the Lord deals with that, as we read just a second ago. However, economically, prosperously, Laodicea had one singular weakness as a city, and that was the water supply. They didn't live near an area where there was an easily accessible water supply. And so Laodicea piped their water from about six miles away through this pipe system. There was like three feet wide diameter pipes that they laid. They had this massive aqueduct that they built, and they brought water from other sources, like I said, about six miles away. And so the problem was that the source of water that reached Laodicea was really gross. I don't know what town, there's certain towns around here where it's like, don't drink the tap water. Right? Laodicea takes the cake on this one. Like, Laodicea is drink the tap water, gamble with your life, go for it. Right? It was full of calcium deposits and nastiness and all kinds of stuff. And the, 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 the idea of the water supply in the city is one of the things that informs the, the way that God talks about them a couple verses away into this passage. And we'll revisit that, so keep that in mind. But it was a city that was plagued by a lack of good, clean water. Um, Hierapolis was near a hot spring. They, had, they were known to have you know, really hot water, and, and, and the, the Colossum church was near a, uh, the city of Colossae was near a cold water spring supply, so they had fresh cold water. Laodicea didn't really have that, and so they had to bring it in from outside, right? It was also a large center for Jewish population. We've had a couple cities that are like that. Um, Laodicea takes the cake on this. There's probably about 7,500 or so men. We can figure this out based on gold supply and the temple tax and all these kinds of things from back in history. But 7,500 men, imagine the families, right? Each one of them has at least a wife and two or three children. So tens of thousands of Jews lived in Laodicea, which at the time for a city was a massive amount. And it was fully immersed in the cult of Rome, just like most of the other cities that we've talked about. That's Laodicea. They have everything they need. They're self-sufficient. Even when they don't have something like water, they figured out how to bring it in, right? And that's the place we find ourselves. The church functions in a lot of ways just like the city does. It's compromised. It has gone well past the idea of compromise. One of the things we, we think of when we, when we read of the church of Laodicea is you question not if once they were godly and they let things go south, but you question if there was ever really a Christian in the church of Laodicea to begin with. It's a godless church in every way. It's a social club that has a cross outside and sings some songs every once in a while. That's all they are. So Jesus introduces himself to this church in verse 14. And we see the same type of pattern, right? He uses some of the, the language from the very beginning of the book of Revelation. And in this case, he says to the angel of the church, write three different things. The words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, and the beginning of God's creation. Right? Three things. The amen, faithful witness, the beginning of creation. Jesus is the amen. You say amen in church all the time. Does anybody know what the word amen actually means? So be it. The word amen is like an exclamation point, like, like, a, like when you sign a contract, you initial things. It's like the initial at the end of the clause. You hear something said, we pray, and I say in Jesus' name, and you say, so be it. It's a seal on the sentence that was just spoken, on the statement that was just made. And Jesus calls himself. He doesn't say something and then say yes and amen. He calls himself the amen. 
John MacArthur puts it this way. Jesus is the amen of God and the gospel. The Lord's gospel is that that sinners must be reconciled and saved, that he loves us so much, that that he does all these things, that he proclaims that he will redeem us, all of the things that the gospel promises. Jesus is the seal on that promise to say, yes, amen, so be it. And he's the method through which it happens, right? And so Jesus is the amen of God and the gospel itself, right? He is the one through whom salvation comes. He's also faithful and true, right? He doesn't just validate the gospel of God, but everything Jesus says itself is valid. Every statement Jesus makes, every proclamation he proclaims, every judgment he pronounces, every praise he raises, every blessing he pronounces upon the people, every single thing out of the mouth of Jesus is true and faithful without fail. Because he's God. He's incapable of producing falsehood. You and I have to work not to lie. Jesus cannot lie. Jesus never has spoken a falsehood one single day in his life. If a sibling of Jesus ever came to him and said, how do I look in this dress? He told the truth. Men don't do that. But Jesus did. Right? He was fully true, fully faithful. Everything from him is trustworthy and reliable. He is, in his essence, truth. And finally, he's the beginning of the creation of God. That doesn't mean that he is the first created. That doesn't mean that he didn't exist, but he was made by God. Jesus always was. What it means is that he essentially precedes the creation. He stands outside of it. Whatever comes and goes in the world in which we live in, Jesus exists outside of that reality. He's not dependent on what the world is doing or the direction it's going or the way the culture is shifting or any of these things. He's not in the creation. He's not of it. He is outside of it. He precedes it. He is before the beginning of it. Before Jesus spoke one single word to create light and darkness, Jesus was there. He never was not. Some strong language to identify himself as the God of the universe before he speaks to this church. And so what does it mean to the church of Laodicea? Well, I am the seal of God's promises. Without me... You don't have a promise. I am the amen. You're not the amen. You're not the thing that seals God's promises. I am. Without me, there's no signature to the contract. It's null and void. I'm it. I am the so be it. Without me, God says stuff and it doesn't happen. I am the seal upon which the gospel and salvation for you is built. Second, everything I tell you is true. The church of Laodicea can't argue and reason with Jesus' words in this letter. They can't say, well, no, that's not true. We're, we have some level of, no, Jesus is true. When he says something to them, that's what it is. You're not hot, you're not cold, you're lukewarm. But like we're, maybe we're like almost boiling. No, what I say is no exceptions. Right? I'm larger than everything that you have made or will ever make. I precede the creation. Whatever level of stuff you think you have or are, I am above all of that. And it's nothing compared to me. I am more significant than you or anything you would produce or possess or think of. 
Before you were, I am. So listen up, church. That's not even really a church anymore. So Jesus introduces himself with the strongest language. And then he accuses them of being neither hot nor cold. And then he says that he would almost rather they be one or the other. And here's where we need to do a little bit of homework. Because for us, for me, what, one of the things this passage seems to suggest, and it's troublesome, is that Jesus is saying, you're kind of Christian. You're lukewarm. Right? I would rather you either just be one or not be one. And that's problematic because that means Jesus is saying, potentially, I would rather you really didn't follow me at all than kind of follow me. And that's not what he's saying. These temperature references aren't somehow a reference to our level of faith or our, 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 the, the, the level to which we are, how Christian we are, how devoted we are in our Christianness or anything like that, right? There's not like the, the Christian that, you know, when you see people sing songs, there's the one who raises hands, they're hot. There's the one who sits there with their arms crossed and doesn't sing, they're cold. And if you're kind of like, if you're Presbyterian and you kind of sway a little bit when you sing, you're lukewarm. No, that's not, that's not what he's saying at all. Every one of you is like, shoot, I'm the lukewarm one. And one or two of you are like, yes, I'm the hot one, right? And one of you is like, in the back, right? But that's not what it's saying. Here's the thing. The reference goes back to this water supply issue. The water in Laodicea came through lukewarm. Colossae was hot or cold. Hierapolis was hot. It was lukewarm. Anybody here? Cut the grass, come in from a day of yard work, and, and the, really the thing that you want more than anything is just a nice, lukewarm glass of water. <laughs> no, right? I remember every once in a while I'll come in and, you know, like my wife will have used the faucet and used it hot, and so I'll turn it to cold and I'll fill my glass, and I don't run it for a second, you know, so I take a sip, well, it's like lukewarm and I have to refill the, the glass or grab something from the fridge. Right? Because we don't like lukewarm. And, and beyond that idea of lukewarm, the Lord takes the metaphor of the water supply to even higher levels. Because the water that would come from the pipes of Laodicea was so contaminated and so gross that generally it was understood that you would get sick from drinking it. Right? It had properties and, and things that developed in it that literally would make the people of the city throw up. You didn't want to drink the water in there, in this otherwise beautifully rich and prosperous town. And so Jesus actually takes the metaphor further, right? The Greek of spit you out of my mouth really means to vomit. So he's saying, listen, do you know what it's like to consume lukewarm water? Yeah, it makes you want to puke. That's how I feel about you. Laodicea, you make me vomit. And those words from God are so much worse than mom saying, I'm not mad, I'm disappointed. It's a punch to the gut. Listen, God at various points in my life has been angry with me. I know it. <clears throat> but I would rather have God wrestle with me and argue with me and, and be angry with me and, and fight with me, right? If you've ever been in a marriage, you, you've, you've had fights in your marriage, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's when, it's when you don't fight anymore that you, you really want to start to worry, right? When you just... Uh, I don't even care to argue with you. You make me sick. You disgust me. That's what God is saying to the people of this church. 
You are neither here nor there. You're not really part of the kingdom at all. I don't know that any one of you has ever been what you could call yourself a Christian. You don't have any concern for the Christ, for church, for Christ in it, for any of the gospel truth, for any biblical sense at all. You're just kind of like an entity that exists. The only thing that makes you similar to a faithful church is that you gather and maybe you have some hymns going on, but that's about it. Whatever that therapeutic junk is, you call that preaching? Your pastor has preached for six weeks straight, and I haven't seen him read one word of God's Bible. He just says, like, stuff to make you feel better. That's not preaching. You disgust me. Ugh. I'm just going to spit you out. Imagine God just saying that to you as a church. I'd rather he be mad any day. I'll deal with whatever righteous anger he has. Because at least when God is angry, he's interacting with me still. He's still in it. Right? The Lord is literally just saying, oh, just go get out of, I don't even want to think of you anymore. You're not even, like, I don't know what you are, but you're not a church, and you're certainly not my church. Just be gone with it. And the thing that makes this letter so atrocious is that there is no redeeming, well, but there, I mean, there's three of you that are faithful. He doesn't mention that, right? Sardis is dead, but at least there's a couple folks left in it who might be faithful people. Laodicea, not only are they not faithful, but here's the worst part. They don't know it. They think they have it all together. Right? What does it say? For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and here's the kicker. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. The essence of the gospel for every Christian is to understand that you are wretched and you need everything from Jesus. The moment you start to think, I don't need Jesus for this or this, or I don't need Jesus in this moment or for this purpose, I don't need, I can do this on my own, I've got it, God, take a seat. The moment you get there, you have forsaken the gospel because the definition of the gospel of Christ is that you are incapable, sinful, useless, a failure apart from the intervention of Christ. It is he who picks you up. It is he who makes you capable. It is he who helps you to not live a life of total depravity and sin. It is he who by his grace upholds you and wakes you up every morning when you don't deserve to be woken up the morning. Do you realize every single one of us this morning didn't deserve to wake and come here. But we got to. Because God's grace was sufficient for us today. And it will be sufficient for us tomorrow and the day to come. The church of Laodicea didn't understand this. They say, I am prosperous. I don't need anything. I'm good, Jesus. Part of why Jesus is so harsh with them is because I can estimate that, that when they received this letter, they looked at it and went... Okay, well, that's weird. And they just went on doing what they were doing. Because they were so consumed with how awesome they were and how prosperous they were and how great they were that they couldn't even fathom the idea that they might not be onto something, that they might not have the gospel that they need. So Jesus loses it on them. And so he's disgusted, absolutely disgusted, right? Later he stands, later in the, in, the, in the text he says, I stand at the door and knock. 
One of the implications, and we'll get to that verse in a second, but one of the implications of I stand at the door and knock is what kind of person has to knock on the door? Somebody who's not inside already. I can tell you something. Jesus never has to knock on our door. It's his house. Stoprez is his house. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not the elders. It's his house. He lives here. He doesn't knock. When's the last time you knocked on your own house? Unless you locked yourself out for a day. The Lord says to the people of Laodicea, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The implication is that he's not even in the church. The church is entirely 100% Christless. Laodicea is the thriving megachurch with all the fixings, the buildings, the mountains of staff, every ministry you could imagine, right? They have a kid's amusement park inside their building and free coffee and lattes every day. Not just Sundays, but every day. You belong to this church, you don't have to go to Starbucks. You can just go to the church and get your free latte every morning before you go to work because they have it. Their sanctuary is full of people, but they didn't hear to come to hear the gospel. They came to hear the great band that would play Right? The worship music hits all the feels, but you don't even know what you're singing. Right? I stumbled on this meme uh, this week, and it just made me laugh. Uh, you know, Be thou my wisdom, thou my true word. The lyrics of that first one, and then today, everywhere I see you, yeah. <laughs> the difference in emptiness of lyrics. I'm not saying that all good music is old and all bad music is, is, is new. That's not it at all. And I also wonder why there's a picture of a dude on this meme, because... Uh, Be Thou My Vision was uh, translated by Mary Elizabeth Byrne in 1905, and it was put to music by Eleanor Hall in 1912. So two women were involved in this. So I don't know why they put a face of a guy. Whoever made this meme doesn't have their history straight. Right? But it was the church, Laodicea was the church that just went, yeah. Well, yeah, for what? I don't know, but we're all saying it. Right? This is no church at all. Jesus is... Words hadn't been uttered in Laodicea for years. No one cared. They just thought they were so great. And again, don't hear me harping on the megachurches out there. There are faithful and wonderful megachurches that exist in the world in which we're today. But man, there are dozens and dozens and hundreds, maybe even thousands of churches today that are just like this. They think they have it all together. But Jesus hasn't been present in that place for decades. They have a budget 13 times ours. But they don't have a Bible to speak their name. No one's read it in forever. Right? Their Bible studies are self-help books. That's the church of Laodicea. And he, God, will have none of it. And so he pronounces judgment on them. Right? And, the, and the, as we go on in the text, we start to see some concluding type of words you know, the Lord kind of tells them, so what are you supposed to do, right? Because what if you're a member of the church of Laodicea and you receive this letter and you actually might have an inkling to listen to something God might say? Well, what should you do? And so what does he say? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so you might be rich and white garments so you might clothe yourselves and shame your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. Three things he tells them to buy, all of which they should buy from him. Now he's not... He's not a, a peddler trying to sell them actual things, right? It's not like God's standing outside the church with salve on a cart going, here. But he's saying this is metaphorical. Buy three things. Number one, gold refined by fire. All the stuff you're going after is temporary stuff. You want to live? You want to be alive? You ought to start buying 
things that last. You start to invest in the kingdom and the treasure that you can take with you, not the one that's insignificant and that you can't take with you. You think you're rich? I could make your riches disappear with a snap of a finger. You don't have richness. Your money's all in stocks and it's tanking when you die. You can't take it with you. Buy gold for me. Invest in the things of God and you will have a treasure that cannot be taken from you that is refined, that is pure. Gold refined by fire. The purest of gold. Come to me and get that gold. Not the world's gold. Not your perceived riches, but the real riches that only come, that only come from me. Second, buy white garments for yourselves. Right? The literal translation of, of white here, the, the Greek word that's used, isn't like white like the, sh- like, like the color of the, you know, a Bible page, but it's a, a shining light type of thing. Like buy yourself garments that are, that are light, that exude lights to the world, that are pure, that are clean, so that you yourselves might be clean. And that can only be bought from me. Buy for yourselves, salve for your eyes. One of the other things that Laodicea was known for is it was a hub for medicine. It was one of the places where they started to to figure out some of these things. Like you've heard about salve in various other passages of scripture. Chances are it came out of here. Right? There was a, you know, they, they took the Phrygian powder and they would make salve that would soothe the eyes and they had doctors that would do experimental stuff there. And a lot of the medicine that was around that time came out of doctors who were practicing and, and studying and learning in Laodicea. And so he's saying, buy salve for your eyes because you're blind. You can't even see how wretched and pitiful and poor and naked you actually are. You need to buy some salve. So you can see. And by the way, all three of these things you need to buy from me. And by the way, also, all three of these things you can't afford. And by the way, also, all three of these things I have a $0 price tag on. They're free. All you got to do is come and get them. That's what he tells them. Otherwise, there's no hope for you. Nothing you have now is of any eternal consequence. And verse 19 He makes a a stunning shift in the tone of this letter. You don't expect it with just how harsh he is and how much he rebukes them. He says this in verse 19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. And then he says the verse that we've all known forever. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come to him and eat with him and he with me. What we have, starting in verse 19 here, is is one of the most beautiful examples of the gospel of Christ on display. He just got done chewing out the church in, in, I would argue, the most harsh rebuke in all of Scripture. I think this is even worse than when when he says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. It doesn't get much worse than God saying, I want to, you just disgust me so much, I just want to vomit you out. Right? Say that to your loved one and see how long the relationship lasts. <laughs> you don't really recover from that, even as a joke, right? But in the midst of it, in the midst of following the worst rebuke of probably all of Scripture, the gospel peeks through. Right? What does he say? Those whom I love, I reprove. Listen, I'm I'm telling you these things not because I'm a mean cuss. 
not because I like making you feel like garbage, but because I love you. I reprove and discipline those whom I love. This is important for us to understand. To be loving isn't to be approving of everything someone does, but at times when they're wrong, to be reproving, right? To go to them and say no. We have to sometimes have harsh words with people because we love them. That's what God does here. The implication is that all of these things being equal, in the midst of him wanting to spit them out of his mouth, God still loves the people. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't have bothered to send a letter. He would have just let them be in their own filth and mess and idolatry and blindness. But he didn't do that. He wrote to them. He speaks to them. He engages with them. He comes to them and he tells them what they need to hear so that they might turn. And the phrase at the end is, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Right? To me, that is the significant passage of this uh, uh, verse, of this whole passage. Right? After all of the stuff he says to them, he says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The implication again is that Jesus is outside the church, but he's knocking. He's still knocking on the church of Laodicea, right? The church of Laodicea was along a main route that soldiers of, of the Roman Empire would often travel. And so one of the things that was in place in the city was a, a housing type of a lodging rule. Anybody's house, like a soldier of Rome, could just kind of waltz in and make themselves at home. And you had to host them and feed them and, and care for them and, and provide them food and shelter and so you might be having a peaceful dinner at home or you might have like the worst day of your life and like 14 Roman soldiers would just barge in and sleep in your bed and, and go, feed me. They would just demand it, right? Contrast this with Jesus. Jesus doesn't operate this way. He just knocks calmly. And he keeps knocking, right? The implication is if anyone hears his voice and opens the door, he'll come in. In Laodicea, if, if, if a single individual, if, if someone there would just, would just turn to Christ and say, I'm yours, he would commune with them like he's about to commune with us for this meal after the sermon. He's standing ready. He's knocking. He would enter the church and he would be with them and he would spend time with them. What we see here is the immeasurable grace of God. Until he comes again in final judgment, that grace is never ending. Jesus will continue to knock until his second coming, until he judges the whole world. Maybe for you, he's just knocking. You have to ask yourself, are you going to let him in? Right? The message to that loud to see in church is, like, I'm spitting you out, but it's not too late. Until the end comes, the grace of God you can be with me. All you got to do is open the door, let me in. I'll come in and I'll dine with you. It's such a powerful picture of grace that we see Jesus portray here. Right? This is how um, James Hamilton puts it in a Preaching the Word commentary. There's a stark contrast then between Jesus standing at the door and knocking on the Roman soldiers, forcing the Laodiceans to house and feed them. The Romans forced their way in and take food from the people. Jesus knocks, waits to be invited in, and then provides the meal. Not only is he patient, everly patient 
with his knocking. It's subtle and it's quiet and he doesn't shout or yell, he just knocks. But if you open it, not only will he come in invited, but he'll bring a meal with him. Right? How cool would it be? How often would you host dinner guests at your house if they brought the food? <laughs> I'd have people in my house every day. Save a lot of grocery bills. Right? That's what Jesus offers. He goes, listen, you don't, you don't have to feed me. I, I have the food. I have my own food and I have yours. And it'll never run dry. I'm just, will you, will you let me in? Or are you going to do this by yourself on your own? Hamilton ends his commentary on this whole section of all the letters, especially the one with Laodicea, by asking a series of questions of, of the reader. And I thought tonight, today, tonight, this morning, might close our time with those questions. And, and these are rhetorical. I don't want you to answer them, but I want you to ask yourself in your mind because it's one of the ways that we check whether our eyes are blind or able to see, right? So answer these questions to yourself. Which do you view as more pressing? A more urgent activity, reading or watching the news, or reading and studying your Bible. Right? Obviously, both are valuable, but on a day-to-day -day basis, if you only have time to do one or the other, which one of those is going to get done? Right? If you had one time, if you only had time to do one thing or the other, and your choices were between taking the time to pray and checking your email or Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is that you use for social media, which of those do you view as a more pressing activity on a daily basis? And don't answer what you think you should think, but what you actually do in everyday life. Right? If you have a choice between prayer and Facebook, email, Twitter, which one of those is getting done? If you could choose between two things, a lottery ticket guaranteed to win a billion dollars or an empty bank account with the assurance that God would provide for you and meet your needs if you just trusted him, which one would you want? Would you choose to have more money than you could ever spend? Or would you choose the opportunity to trust in God? Which of these would you pick if you had your hopes and dreams realized in all of the American political scene? You could see every candidate ever elected and every political issue dealt with in the way that you would want. Imagine just being able to choose our leaders. Every election that you want won is won. Every policy that you want to happen happens. Would you choose that or would you take the opportunity to identify yourself as an alien and a stranger in a world that is not your home because God tells you that there's a better home that you're working towards and that he is calling you towards. How would you answer these questions? They're not random questions. They're designed to test certain things about us. They answer questions about us like what shapes your thinking, the world or scripture? What communication is non-negotiable for you, upward or outward? What do you trust, money or Jesus? And what will you ultimately identify with, a political party or the kingdom of God? Where is your heart? Is Christ actually the Lord of your life, or is he an afterthought? I'm not suggesting that we as a church or even as individuals are like Laodicea, but man, one of, the, one of the things I hope you've noticed as we've gone through these churches is, you know, we might not identify fully with one of them, but every single one we read, there's a part of it that goes, yeah, I'm kind of like that sometimes. Every once in a while, every once in a while, I am like the tolerating church of Pergamum. You know, I, I know that I should be correcting that 
that, that false teaching, and I know something about it's just off, but yeah, my friend just really loves that book, and I just, I just don't want to stir up trouble. Or, you know, right? We don't tolerate everything. We're not hyper-tolerant. We're not a bastion of, of liberalism from, from a moral perspective. But man, every once in a while, don't we all just say, let's just let it be. Every once in a while, we're all the, the church that lost our love. We get busy, we get crazy with life, we maybe have a bad week, and we, we, we don't put love first. Right? We know that there's people that we should care for and reach out to and, and share the gospel with and be a light unto their feet. But, yeah, we just, I mean, we have our doctrine right. Let's just, they'll just figure it out. Right? Every one of us, at some point or another, is compromising. We allow certain things in the church to kind of keep happening because it's just easier than dealing with it. People might get angry. People might leave. So why, why, right? Every one of us at one point or another lives faith at a surface level rather than the depth that God calls us to in this final letter. Every one of us has a little bit of Laodicea in us if we're honest with ourselves. So my invitation for you with all of these letters, it wouldn't be to let yourself be weighed down in the guilt and the shame of it all, but, but that as the church hears of these things, I want you to put yourself in the position of these churches right? and think, how would I respond to this? Right? The Lord is calling you out on your stuff. Are you going to cross your arms and pout? Or are you going to allow him to shape you and mold you into the person he wants to make you? You're going to take things to heart and go, yeah, you know, in some ways I am like that. And Lord, help me, help me as I seek to work on that by your grace and by your strength, not by my own. Right? Help me not to compromise. Help me not to tolerate the things I'm not supposed to tolerate. Help me to, to put love first, even when I'm tired and weary. And it's the, it's the last thing I want to do is deal with that hard person because I just want to go home and watch TV or check out. Sometimes I'd just rather be bitter. Help me through those things, Lord. My encouragement in all of these letters is that we might give ourselves more and more to him. And my longing would be that, man, someday if the Lord ever decides to write to the church at Stove, that it might look like a blessing more than a curse. Right? He might call us well done, good and faithful servants, that he might tell us, way to hold fast. I'm going to open for you doors that no one can shut. I pray that you might have felt spurred on and convicted by something said in these weeks. If you haven't, you might be blind and need some salve, if I'm honest with you. And I pray that our church might continuously, as every single letter concludes, have an ear to hear what God might say to the church and its people. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you. We thank you for the rebukes, even when they hurt. We thank you that in your loving kindness, you might choose to engage with us, that when we don't follow the way that you've called us to live, when we go against your word, that in the midst of all of those things, you love us enough to speak up, to say something. We praise you for 
the fact that you were willing to write letters to these seven churches and that they might have been preserved all the way to this day so that we as your church might be able to read them and understand and hear and dissect things from them that apply to our time and our day. Because your truth is universal and steadfast. In a moving world, you are an immovable God. So we thank you. We pray, Lord, that someday the letter to Stowe Perez might read like the one to Smyrna or to Philadelphia. That we might be a church that is small but mighty. That loves your people and your community and cares about the things you, things you care about. That walks in faith, not out of fear, not out of prosperity, not out of our own selfish desires, but is a, a church that seeks after you and you only in the fullness of who you are. Lord, as we're reading in Revelation, more than anything, we thank you that you are coming back. That there is a day that you promise us where all of the, the strife and the struggle and the, the persecution and the restlessness will end. Where we get to live into the fullness of what it means to be your church. Thank you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you care enough about us to reprove us when we need to be. We pray that we might be a church after you, after your heart. We love you and we praise you. And together, all his people said, Amen.